Welcome to the GBA Legal Podcast, the number one legal podcast where we get real with legal issues. And my name is Luisa Matumorethi, and I want to introduce our wonderful co-host, Annette Akama. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Today in studio, we have Dr. Bright Gomeli Maudo. Say hi, Dr. Bright. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good. Thank you. Thank you so much for gracing us. It's great to Today, be here. Today, we are going to be talking about everything cyber security. So, Dr. Bright Gomeli Maudo is the head um, of cybersecurity services at Dimension Data East Africa, and he's also the founder of the cybersecurity collective Afri Hakon, the first ever live demonstration cybersecurity security conference in East and Central Africa. Yeah. He also acquired his PhD in IT convergence and application engineering with a concentration in information security from Pukyong National University, yep. South Korea. Well, um, Dr. Bright, this is uh, such... <laughs> <laughs> And we haven't even gotten through it. So um, Bright has also presented at over 145 cybersecurity conferences. He's lectured at various universities and contributed to various cybersecurity publications. He was also recognized by the tribe of hackers, Blue Team 2020. He's also been listed under the top 40, under 40, 2016 of young entrepreneurs in Kenya. And he's worked with world-class organizations such as Cellulant and Ushahidi. Wow, Dr. Bright. Thank you so much Thank you. For, um, for, for coming. And this was one of the recordings that I was really, really looking forward to. Yeah. I have had the pleasure of listening listening to you on um, different platforms on social media. Yeah. But um, cybersecurity and data protection has become an area of interest in the wake of um, the, the passing of the Data Protection Act in 2019. Yeah. Before that, we really didn't have a data protection framework, regulatory framework mm-hmm. in Kenya. Yeah. And so we've had a lot of interest in the market from clients coming to ask, what does this act provide for? What are some of the compliance requirements? And also just on cybersecurity generally. So it's really good to have you here. Thank you. And I will start off by asking, how did you get into cybersecurity? Because I know you, I think I read it somewhere that you developed your first, was it virus? Yeah. At eight years old. Yeah, I was seven, eight there about. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get into it? I think it's a lot of curiosity that I had um, growing up. I got exposed to computers very young and um, that I, I just kept on trying to read basic and try anything and everything. So the whole computer virus thing when I was eight was because of my teacher. She really pissed me off and I had to find a way to make the class, I would do it in favor of the class because she wanted us to submit a, um, an assignment so early and people haven't really understood what she taught. So I decided, yeah. you know what, the only way to do is to create a virus that crashes her computer because I finish really fast and she'll have to take some time to figure out what's going to happen, which bought everybody time, you know? So yeah, I was, so I wasn't doing it for a bad thing. I was helping the class in a, in a, in a good way. If you say so. <laughs> if, if you say so, Dr. Bright. Yeah. So then um, you get through your primary schooling and you're originally from Ghana. Yes. Moved to Kenya. Moved to Kenya. Yeah. Uh, went to St. Mary's uh, where I did my high school. That is where I got a bit more curious because I created another virus there when I was 14. Um, basically because at the time there's only one computer that you can have access to for internet back in the day. You know, so the if you get to the library first, you get access to the computer to use it first. And I was competing with people who are faster than me when it comes to running. So I can't get to the library so fast. And 
Sacred is something that activates every three minutes or five minutes before break time or lunch time, which covers the screen about 98% of it. You can't use, there's only three combination of keys you have to press and type a command for it to stop, for it to move out. Otherwise you can't use it. So that works. I can walk just straight to the computer. Other people are struggling and I know they're going to move. So that's basically what I did. And uh, I kind of started getting more curious about hacking because I thought I first wanted to be a software engineer, but I realized programming is not my strong, my strong forte. So I decided to go into hacking and I started learning a bit more of that. Then I went to Daystar is when I now got a bit too curious to the point that one time um, law enforcement came thinking I was part of um, Anonymous, Anonymous the hacking. At the time, it was a group. You know, they thought I was part of um, of them. And that was Interpol. Interpol was here in Kenya. I was like, okay, this is a bit scary. But they they let go because it's like, no, it's got the wrong guy. We're just talking about it so much on the internet. And I started searching a bit more. I started learning a bit more than, than the normal hacking. And to the point that I hacked a school network to create students who never existed to see if they can help moderate the grades. And it worked. Um, again, that was because of a class I was trying to help. So I don't change my grades, but I make everybody to get a fair judgment of their grades. Um, because some people were really smart and some of us are still struggling in certain classes. I had to help. Then went to Cellulant, where I was an entry-level security engineer. Um, I was the second foreigner they ever hired, actually. Um, and then after working there for two years, fully hired, I went to South Korea to do my master's. I overdid my credits. Um, instead of twenty, instead of twenty six credit, I did forty, and then later now pushed a bit of that into PhD. I was I came back to Kenya. My dad told me to go back. He's like, "You're not done. Please go back." Yeah. Then they reduced my credits for me. That's why I finished a PhD and the masters both in four years. How old were you when you got your PhD? Twenty eight. Wow. Yeah, mm. I was the youngest in my faculty in that in my faculty ever to get that PhD. But generally in Korea, everybody gets a PhD. It's quite an easy thing for them. Mm. And they're encouraged to do that. It's a whole new culture. I came back to Kenya to be head of security for Cellulant again, before later moved to Internet Solution that merged with the parent company Dimension Data later. That's where I am right now. Oh, great. Yeah. And so, right, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about Africa Hackon. Yeah. So Africa Hackon is um, is a cybersecurity collective. Um, I've been running that conference for the past eight years. Reason be reason why I started it was because I've seen other conferences in the States and the UK, Black Hat, DEF CON, DerbyCon, all of those conferences, and I didn't have the money to go. So I decided, how, how about just start my own in Kenya? Um, which has grown. Like we've seen a lot of people getting involved. Microsoft flew all the way down here. People flew from other countries to come to Africa Hack on this time. Hmm. And um, actually we have another one next month, uh, end of, at the beginning of November, 2021. Um, and the reason is because I just wanted to get to natural talent in Africa that we have that people are not aware of. So through that, almost 60 to 80 people right now practice cybersecurity full-time or they're immersed in cybersecurity from a very young age, as young as 12. You know, we have how my personal assistant um, technically is actually 16 years old and it's started pretty young. So that that way we are churning out more cybersecurity engineers in the right way, but not people who learn hacking and become bad 
actors in, in the cyberspace, which you're trying to prevent. So that's what we've been doing and just sharing knowledge, you know? So yeah, that's what Africa Hackon is mainly about. Yeah. So having created capacity like you are nurturing talent and you've worked in this space for long, yeah. do you feel like there's a dissociation between the regulatory framework on cybersecurity and what the cyberspace actually is like? Because um, we have the Kenya Information and Communications Act, which is a very old statute, 1997. Yeah. Then we have the Computer Misuse and Cybercrimes Act, which in my opinion, um, it, it tries to cover a few um, cybersecurity offenses. Yeah. But sometimes I wonder when it comes to investigation and enforcement, if we have the capacity the current infrastructure, if we have the capacity to prosecute adequately. And then now recently we have the Data Protection Act and the regulations which we are projecting to be um, enforced and gazetted any time yeah. soon. But do you feel that there's a dissociation between the regulatory framework and the needs of the local cyberspace? One, let's even start from the point of uh, assuming you've been you've been hacked right now and you go to Kilimani Police Station and you decided to say, I want to report a cybercrime. They will know nothing about what to do, which is a very big disconnect. So the first point which I always put when it comes to regulatory processes and frameworks is awareness. Most people don't even understand exactly what is contained in those documents. They've never read it. Very few people have read it. If you do a poll right now or any time to find out people who understand that framework, even if even its existence, they'll tell you they don't understand what is in there. So getting to understand the details of it and exactly what is what it entails or how it's supposed to be used by even a common user or a corporate entity needs to get out there. So there's a big disconnect. So even try to do investigations, look, every day we are hearing about banks being hacked. We're hearing about corporates losing data and they're like, okay. Um, or even one, let's, let's take for a typical example, an insurance company, an insurance employee has access to a lot of data. If he leaves tomorrow, says he quit yet you haven't done a few due diligence in terms of policy and the likes, which we can discuss later, he can take that data to someone else or sell it to bad actors out there who can use that information to be able to do some sort of social engineering that likes. So a lot of people are not aware or even where to start. And I think there's, there's a lot of work that has to be done in terms of awareness. Yeah. So then in line with what you've just said, what do you think are the fundamental gaps between that local data breach notification and then the incident response mechanisms? So first of all, an incident response that I guess to be reported even needs to have a lot of detail as to what exactly happening. Um, how do you even go about trying to contain that particular breach, if there's a breach per se, and how do you even report it before? How do you even get law enforcement to, to actually jump in? And if you even get to find out exactly what happened or who is the perpetrator, how do you prosecute that person? You need a lot of evidence. So the collection of those evidence, the prevention, the, the treatment of all of those evidence has to be understood by the entire organization and the person who's in charge of that particular department, which is the head of risk, right? Or head of security, because not everybody has a risk manager in the organization. Some just have a head of security. Uh, which has to be defined. Even at times that get to the extent of a physical security practitioner. So getting to work hand in hand and all of these are all around one thing, policies. If you ask how many um, organizations have policies, they'll tell you, yeah, we have a few of them. If you ask them, if you ask them if they've ever 
read it to understand what is supposed to be done, they will tell you, yeah, we, had, we know this thing it exists, or they'll go dig up for it when an issue really happens. If they have an incident response plan, they'll tell you they have it. Have you ever tested it? They'll tell you no. Majority of people don't test those incident response plans, don't even know how to, don't even know what level to involve the third party, which is now the, the, the police, for example, you know, and or involved other legal part of the organization or involved even the physical security part of things. So getting to know the right policies being created because some people don't even have them. Talk about startups. How many startups right now have policies? They don't until an issue happens before they start trying to go back and see how to fix that. So startups are one problem. Um, no, not startups, are policies are one. And procedures, you know, having a policy is one thing, but these days you have a policy and a procedure put into one. And then there's a third part of it, which is controls. So policies, the procedures, the controls have to be able to work together and have to be listed saying, these are the penalties if you violate these policies and controls. In that case, you know exactly how you're going to tie all of them down to be able to actually execute them for something like an incident response. Have you had the opportunity of um, perhaps interacting with the Kenya Cybersecurity Incidents Incident Report um, and Coordination Center? Um, we, as we were doing our research for a publication that we did as a firm on on a cybersecurity on a cybersecurity and on an international cybersecurity guide, we established that the Communications Authority had set up the Kenya um, Cybersecurity Incident In Report and to... Response and Coordination Center, yeah. and then we actually reached out to to them to find out what the investigation and um, enforcement mechanism is like. And I remember they indicated that first they assess the veracity of the claim and the breach. And then they take it through a triage process to find out if um, it is something that they have the capacity to investigate and to give a solution to. Then if it's something that they do, they they take some time and then provide a solution to the person who's reported mm-hmm. on how to um, sort of segment and protect the cyber the cyberspace and the infrastructure from yeah. from compromise. And then if they don't, they can then refer it to perhaps private institutions if they don't have the capacity to provide a solution, or if they think it's a criminal offense, then they can then escalate it for the requisite prosecution. Yeah. But we really haven't had a chance to hear from anyone in the market or a person who's responded to them. Are you in a position to perhaps? Perhaps comment on the efficiency, or if they have, if they, if they've been able to provide the requisite um, support and okay. solutions. Um, now I have I have two ways of answering that, and one might look like I'm bashing them, but it's not. Um, so uh, I have reported a lot of incidences in Kenya um, in the past, um, and I try to do it the right way, what we call a responsible disclosure. Okay, a responsible disclosure is something which a lot of people don't understand, and that's something even I, I I urge the legal fraternity to be able to take up, that somebody can legally can try to responsibly disclose a hack that they've done on an organization or on a government entity. So in the past, I tried to report that, and it was not efficient at the time. Now I have seen more efficiency. There's response to emails. You know, before you just get an automated response that. We have received this, uh, whatever it is, and um, we shall respond back to you. So there never used to be 
a way to even respond to some of these things. But right now, trust me, there's a lot of changes that have happened. So I will commend the Communications Authority to actually have capacity to be able to respond to those kind of um, um, responsible disclosures because I still do respond. I still, still disclose some things that I've seen, say, a government system is not secure. Can you please help to change that? That they can relate it to the right government agency. Because if I was to respond to directly to them, if they don't understand what exactly I'm saying, they can easily come for me, saying that I illegally breached their system. And sometimes it's not even breaching the system. It's basically a very easy way of getting to see information you're not supposed to see. So, um, yes, there's a lot of work that has been done. In the past, it wasn't that efficient. But right now, uh, I have seen a better, I've seen improvement. And also, people have been trained. Um, some of the people that I know who work in the, the, the KE cert, actually, people who are, no, are more knowledgeable and know how to respond to such incidents. I feel, however, that they need to actually double or triple that. Because there's a lot more... And again, there's not a lot of awareness to make people come out if they see, because I have mentees who have seen things. They're like, are we supposed to be seeing this on this government system? How can we report it? But they're scared. So they don't have any, they don't, they're not aware that they can legally uh, or the right way or what's the right procedure for them to be able to um, report such a thing. So do they have to come to Bright just because Bright is excuse me, a bit loud in the cybersecurity space, so they'll believe me easily. But you see, what of a high school student? Well, there are high school students who are really good at what they do. High school, I'm not talking about university, high school students, and they want to report that. So again, we need to get word out there that it's okay for you to come out and say this sounded a possible um, vulnerability in a system. This could be a threat to the organization, to the national, to national security, and you want somebody to respond to it. And if possible, what you call a back bounty. You know, we're not used to that in, in Africa. I've not seen a lot of companies that have um, put out back bounties to make sure that they can basically reward some of these students or kids or individuals for being able to disclose something. The only person who are, the only company in Kenya who does that right now is Safaricom. They're the only person, and I helped out, I, I was part of the, the inception of that where they legally allow you to enter a program where if you enter the program, you've been vetted, you can legally hack Safaricom and they pay you for it. And a lot of people are making side money from that. It's become their main hustle. It's not a hustle, it's a main job right now. So that's that's what I, I, I will say about um, incident response for them on a national, on a national level. And so even as you've spoken about Safaricom and them being the only company in Kenya that has that system in place, what then would be the correlation between data privacy and cybersecurity? So data privacy can be seen in um, well, there's an individual level and also on a, on a corporate level. Um, on a corporate level, which I'll start with, is, is the fact that we want to see how much data that has been collected the data processors, data controllers, and data. Um, what's the third one? There's a third one. It's data controllers, um, data processors. Yeah. And then um, there's the office of the da data no, protection commissioner. No, no. Before then, that, I mean, it's, it's the it's a processes. Data protection officer. 
Yes. Oh, that's, that's an, okay, I'm, I'm forgetting that. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a joint controller. There's a data processor, data controller, and data protection officer, DPO. But you know, there's a data collector. Yeah, it's a data processor, and it's a data controller. Yes. Okay. So every organ, most organizations form under they they come under in either one of them. Yeah. So you can be, for and then some some who are actually having both. For example, Safaricom is a data collector, but how they process that data is a different thing. Could be processed by somebody else, and then there's a data controller as to what they can do with that data. Then there's a joint controller who means they're collecting the data at the same time with the same people to process them, right? So for example, if you go to a website um, and you click www.brightz.com, uh, I'm just collecting, I'm the data collector at that point, but the person who's processing is maybe, maybe Google who gives analytics as to how many people came here, how many people clicked on this link, how many people did A, B, C, D. Um, now, Looking at privacy is now trying to figure out where is that data going to exactly and what are people doing with it. So how is the data that is being collected by somebody going to another entity, which a lot of people get don't get to understand as well. Again, individuals don't know where that data that they submit to websites and the likes, where is it going? Recently, I think you heard in Kenya where we saw people being registered for political parties and they have no idea about it. So where is that data being? Where did they where, where did they collect all of that information to actually sign them up? Who is actually processing that data? Who's keeping it? Who's making sure that data is safe? So that's where a lot of privacy concerns get to come in, which the government has to be taking a bit, a bit of notice of. Yeah. Um, I think from what we've conducted a few trainings yeah. with some of our clients, and I can relate to the fact that there's some confusion, especially for clients in regulated industries, for example, the banking industry, yeah. who are both data controllers and data processors. Yes. So they actually get information, they collect the information, but they also determine how it's done, how, how it's going to be processed and what it's going to be used for. Yeah. And then one of the concerns that we also got from the market was the requirement to conduct um, an impact assessment yeah. of how the information is being collected, its safety, how long they should keep it. And, um, any possible risks that they may that they may have or that may present themselves, to. yes, by by having that um, that information, and so this leads me to my next question: yeah. Where is the role of um, the private the private sector and its engagement with government in coming up with solutions and a collaborative framework to? to help improve um, data security and cyber security. Because yeah. the truth is the government in itself and the nature of the law when it comes to innovation is that it's always playing catch up yeah. because innovation will always move way faster than the law. Then the law will have to figure out then how to protect data subjects yeah. within these developments. Where is the place of that engagement between the private sector and the government? <laughs> So even before we talk about the private sector and government, people who are creating systems don't usually understand how they're supposed to keep that data, you know? Um, because first of all, there's some people who don't understand what GDPR is all about until now. They don't understand where data protection really means. They don't even understand why the data being kept in another country is going to have an impact on them here. So architecture, design, architectural design of systems alone is going to play a lot of 
it's going to play a key role in how data is being kept. So between the private and the government sectors, there's a lot of detail in that has to be laid down and people need to follow those regulatory processes to know exactly how they even design the systems before it actually even gets to go to production. Typical example, if you go to Ghana right now and you want to release a mobile application, which is going to collect customer information and process them in one way or the other, you have to go to Data Protection Commission and fill a form and submit documents to show or prove that you actually are safeguarding the customer's data. You've done security assessment, you've done system penetration testing, you've done remediations. All of those have to be given before they can give you an approval. Otherwise, they're not going to let you roll out the mobile application. Whereas right now, in, I think in Kenya, we're still catching up with that. Everyone is just collecting data. How many loan apps do we have in Kenya? Quite a number, many, more than 40 of them. How are they collecting that data? How many, um, how do you call it? What's the thing called? This kind of um, loto kind of games and people. Lottery, and lottery and betting, kind of, gambling. And betting and gambling. How, who is actually regulating these people that they're collecting all this data and what are they doing with it? They are not following the right processes. And some of these systems are even been developed by foreigners who keep the data on their side and it's not being kept in Kenya. Where is cloud coming in? You know, cloud security, cloud systems, that cloud that, it, so data is staying somewhere in Germany or the United States or or outside of Europe where there's no GDPR being applied to it, what is what is going on with that data there? Who is having access to that or who could have access to that data and what can they do with it? So a lot of questions have to be asked when we're even trying to set up our basic systems and the government has to be involved in being able to enforce or push this that every person who is going to be, who's going to collect any data or process it in any way, even in the private sector, has to conform to certain processes which they have laid down. But right now, I feel like everything is on paper, but it's not being pushed. But that also has to start with the government. They themselves have to start conforming to those ways before trying to even get the, the private entity to work together and make sure they're all following the same rules. It will take some time. That That's just my, my, my thought. It will take some time. Yeah, I can speak to the regulatory aspect when we reviewed the draft regulations yes. that um, the, the, the Data Protection Commission, first of all, had called for public participation and um, uh, stakeholder engagement on those regulations. We then saw that there are now provisions for the registration, first of all, of data controllers and data processors. Yeah. And then on top of that, there's a requirement to file consistent returns on yeah. the nature of information that you're holding and um, they've also defined what um, sensitive and personal information and data is. You also have to demonstrate um, why you're keeping that information and for how long you need to keep it. If it's no longer necessary, then you have to dispose of that information. And then if there's any breach, you have to notify the data subject. And then there's also the issue of the use of private information for commercial purposes yeah. and the requirement to notify a data subject that the information may be used for commercial purposes for advertisements, ETC. I think it's a very robust framework. Yeah. And we can only wait to select the jury release out on that. It, we, we, we're still waiting to see. I, I, I think a lot of penalty has to come for people who actually violate those and they should come in sections. You know, for example, um, people get, every day you get to see somebody sending a message saying uh, from, an, from an unknown service, 
that you've been subscribed to this or you should get to, you can take loans for this X amount. Where did they get my number from? You know, those people should be prosecuted. Oh, we should have a way to be able to report them that I did not subscribe to this. Why am I getting that information? There's somebody I know who made a lot of money by subscribing people to Bible quotes in the morning. They never registered. But you see, they've been charged X amount of money every morning for Bible quotes. And let's say they charge a shilling per person. If this person sends to 10 million people in a day, how much money has it made? Which is very legal. So I think such people needs to happen. There should be a, there should be a task force to be able to crack down on these people to basically go after them. Make sure that every kind of illegal registration or collection of people's data and processing of people's phone numbers alone. Let's start with the basics. Phone numbers should actually, they should actually be cracked down on and prosecuted for this. And which is now where the law comes in. How many judges or magistrates even understand some of these details? A lot more education needs to actually happen that they can know that when this case comes to them, this is how they're going to treat them. Yeah, I agree. I feel like there's still a lot more in terms of capacity building when yeah. it comes to judicial officers and lawyers and people in the legal space really interacting, of course, with um, with experts and people who've trained and studied and worked in, in the cybersecurity space like you have. So then we have the capacity to really understand. And then when it comes to um, protecting, protecting data subjects and information and sensitive and private information of persons, we're then proper properly equipped yeah. and 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 informed but i agree i definitely there's definitely a lot to be done yeah. when it when it comes to the compliance and enforcement yes so dr bright you have had the benefit of consulting for organizations across different jurisdictions yes what are some of the things from a regulatory and infrastructure perspective you think we are missing and that we can have in place to 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 improve the regulatory and infrastructure framework here in kenya I've seen a lot of um, other countries, uh, not to mention any, any specific, but there are simple things as even what you said before, notifying somebody of a breach. If your data has been breached in, and I'm the one who's holding it, let me let you know that um, we were hacked and your data was part of the details of people who were hacked, who were who the hacker or the perpetrator must have gotten access to, you need to know. You have the right to know that. Also, reporting a breach is another really important part which a lot of people, a lot of organizations don't do, be it government or be it private. They don't want to admit to it. They don't want to let people know. I know it. there's a whole fear of your name being tarnished and everything, but I think it's best if you let people know and what you're doing to be able to actually... Um, to solve that problem, that they can have more confidence in the, in, in, in that organization or even the government. Um, the last but not the least is sharing of information. A lot of people don't share information. Um, look at how many banks getting hacked every day, but they don't talk about it. They don't share that information with even a regulator and say, this is how I got hacked. This is what happened. And this is how I think we have been able to fix it. So look out for that. So if you're going to fix A, B, C, D, typical example, say ransomware that has spread. And a ransomware is basically somebody who gets to be infected with a particular malware type. The machine is locked and encrypted that they can have access to their data. So this is what they're trying to do. Or does anybody else have any kind of way to help solve that problem? So watch out for this. This is how it's spreading out. You know, 
in that case, everybody gets to be aware. I think we'll move faster if we share information that way and also be able to get people to be penalized if they violate a lot of, of, um, of regulatory processes. So I think um, at this point, I would like to ask that if you have any comments on this wonderful topic of cybersecurity, that you'd leave a voice note or comments, please send that to our number, which is 0718-870-167. That's 0718-870-167. Please follow us on Facebook. We are GVA Law Firm. On Twitter, we're also at GVA Law Firm. On LinkedIn, it's Gikera and Radgama Advocates. And on Instagram, it's GVA Law Firm. So, uh, Bright, I'd like to ask you more about the how cybersecurity affects us as individuals. You've already mentioned um, bank hacks and people being sent messages to their phones without and, opting in rather. Yeah. How, how do you think cybersecurity affects us on a day-to-day basis as individuals? Individuals, are, let me start, they're losing a lot of money. They're losing their data. And some of them are even giving up. Um, there's an 80-year-old lady the other day. Her bank account was wiped because of one way or the other, still investigating. She could have clicked on the link. She could have picked up a phone call. She could have given that information out. So we, I mean, individuals need to know what information that they're not supposed to share, which is personal information, passwords. Nobody's going to call and ask you for your password. But again, I don't want to assume that everybody knows what they're supposed to do and they're not supposed to do. That is why we're having this conversation right now. Basics is, let me start from the basic, email security. You know, you need to make sure that you can actually secure your email because everything you do right now ties back to your email. Then you need to make sure you have simple security things such as two-step verification. What that means is that you set up a code or any settings of your email or anything else that you have which requires those that anytime you want, somebody even steals your password and they want to log in, you can actually get a second notification to your mobile phone to authenticate as you. People don't have that. And trust me, it's available for every social media account. So why don't we make sure that we can actually get those um, things activated, get them activated. There's something called a backup code. It's available for every email security solution. It's available on most social media platforms such as Instagram and the likes which makes sure that you can have an extra set of code in case you have your phone being stolen or somebody steals your number because people are stealing numbers these days and they kick you off. You can still get access to your emails and the likes to disconnect or, or kick out the, the the hacker or whatever it is. And the easiest way, guys, that people are people are being hacked right now is social engineering. Social engineering is what we call hacking the human brain. I'm very trying to get to talk to you about certain things that you share information you're not supposed to share with me. So I've seen people call and say, hi, I'm calling from ABCD. I'm trying to get this information about you. Did you register your MPSA number twice? Um, we're trying to guess, verify, is your name bright, Gameli Maudo? You're like, yeah, is your phone number this? Yes. Did, it's a date of birth, ABCD. So at that point, they've created the confidence that you, that they know information about you and they're from the bank or whoever it is. And they go ahead and ask you, um, so what was, the, what was the last transaction? They're asking the right questions to be able to kick you off your own line, right? Or they even ask you, what is the PIN that you use when you registered ABCD? Trust me, people actually give those PINs out. So that is on the user side. People need to be very aware. If it sounds too good to be true, 
probably is. It probably is. Mm. Then comes to now applications people use. A lot of people install applications to do things for free or has certain features that are not normal. Let me give a typical example, WhatsApp GB. WhatsApp GB is not official WhatsApp application and it's free. It's supposed to help you see things you're not supposed to see normally, help you to be able to do things on an extreme. But you see anything that is free, you are the product. Yes, you are. <laughs> if it's free, you are the product. So basic things such as those and how you can um, um, potentially just, um, I mean, you get compromised because of such basics is what we used to, we are, we're getting actually open to. In Kenya, every, every country differs a lot. If you go to the United States, a lot of calls are being made to people saying your computer has been infected and want to help you to fix it. So can you give us your number? Uh, a lot of corporates have been targeted through individuals saying that here's the link, please get to um, process some of these details and you click on the wrong link. On an individual basis in Kenya, we don't see that much of it. We are seeing a lot of social engineering of calls or what you call vision. Okay, vision is now voice hacking. So a lot of people are falling for that. And I'll just tell people to be very careful of what information. If they ask you questions, ask questions back, which would make it very difficult that you know only very few people actually have that information about you. Just to follow up on that, yeah. because um, we are a law firm yeah. and our our work and clients really, part of what clients really want to know is that their information is confidential and private um, client advocate confidentiality is a very huge part of our daily work as okay. advocates. And because a lot of work over the past three decades has transitioned to electronic, um, electronic, electronic movement of information, yeah. we almost always now talk to our clients via email, yeah. ETC, we process payments to uh, um, from our clients, ETC, everything is centered on an electronic system. Yeah. What are some of the recommendations that you can make over and above having a, a, a data protection and privacy policy uh, to basically ensure that our information yeah. and our clients' information is well protected. Just simple, practical um, things that we can do in an organization within an intranet to yeah. ensure that we're safe. The hacker does not care about the policies. <laughs> you know, whoever's going to hack you, he doesn't care what policies you have. But it, it goes down to, and how are you enforcing those things? So basic things like email security. So I tell people, make sure... You, you're a human being. I can fake an email from you to her. Trust me, it's so easy. It takes less than 10 seconds to do that. It has been done, actually. So I was speaking to a colleague of mine who yeah. is a partner, at, a managing partner at a law firm. His communication with a client was actually intercepted mm -hmm. and someone emailed as him. Yeah. And so, there were some bank account details that were faked and money was paid into a different, a different account. account. And I couldn't believe it. We call that a business email compromise. And it's happening a lot more to senior people. So senior managers are the ones that are targeted because they hold the key informations and the secretaries most of the time or people in finance departments. And uh, so email security is the basics. People need to get email security solutions that works for them, that can protect them on those. Hackers are not going for physical solutions or details in in, in terms of um, you being hacked on, on the network level these days. They're going for 
for emails to be hacked. So once they hack the emails and they're able to get those details, they can process anything on your behalf. They can change your rules, what you call rules, in the sense that every time I send an email to you, it doesn't show that it's from you. It actually doesn't come to you. It goes to another domain that they have set up. So you can't spot some of those email phishing attacks that come in, phishing as we call them. You need to get a solution that will work for you. Then we need anti-malware solutions because sometimes they send a document to you if I want to hack you, I'll send an email to you legitimately applying for something or asking for some details. Once you download that document to your computer, it's done. I'm in. You know, and it comes as a document. So how can you prevent that? You need proper endpoint security solutions that will work for you. People ignore such things. They don't update their computers. They don't do security assessment or audit or vulnerability assessment to know where they're vulnerable at because you're not the expert. So you need to get that outsourced to someone who actually gets to do that. So just some of the basics that I'll say, um, apart from those, people have to be very vigilant. So if you have any comments on this uh, podcast about cybersecurity or any questions or queries that Karen Redkama can assist you on in regards to data privacy, please leave us a voice note or a comment on our number 0718-870-167. That's 0718-870-167. Reach out to us on all our social media pages. On Facebook, we are GVA Law Firm. On Twitter, we are at GVA Law Firm. On LinkedIn, we are Gikera and Badgama Advocates, GVA. And on Instagram, at GVA Law Firm. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Bright Gomeli. This has been a very informative recording. Um, personally, I really, really looked forward to this and I really can't wait for our listeners to, you know, get to hear this as well. Um, is there any last word or thing you'd like to say in terms of, you know, just people being interested in the protection of their own information and being interested in cybersecurity? I will encourage, uh, thank you very much for even having me. <laughs> um, I will encourage people to read wide, um, explore details that are out there. I will say that they need to be aware of what is happening, ask questions and ask the government, ask the, ask the organizations if there are any, um, they need to ask critical questions. And last but not the least, the internet does not forgive, it doesn't forget. Whatever you put out there on the social media pages and all of those details that you share, in a sharing age that we are in, somebody's watching, somebody's going to use that against you. Beware and be aware. Well, there you have it, guys. Thanks so much for joining us and for listening in again. Um, thank you, the GVA Legal Podcast, the number one legal podcast, and we will catch up with you next time. Thank you, everybody. Bye.